0: questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas.
1: Every record has been destroyed or falsified. Every book rewritten. Every picture has been repainted. Every statue and street building has been renamed. Every date has been altered. And the process is continuing day by day, a minute by minute. History has stopped Nothing exists except an endless present in which the party is always right. Those were the words of George Orwell. And from the words of tonight's special guest, have we been lied to? During 1850 to 1915, great expositions or world fairs were built worldwide, including Chicago, 1893, Paris, 1900, St. Louis, 1904, and San Francisco, 1915. These giant expos ranging from seven to twelve hundred acres were built in impossible times of less than two years. Then following the end of the event, they were demolished, destroyed, and thrown into landfills. Each of these fairs were built to resemble ancient Rome, and now I feel that is no accident. But were the buildings of these world expositions new ones being built or old ones being restored? part of a civilization that was coexisting with ancient Rome and Greece? Tonight, we inspect the history of the world expositions between 1851 and 1915, and the strange time frame they were associated with. Stay with us.
0: You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, cheque, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum, and more. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, for Focused Life Force Energy, MMS, EMP Shield, Solar, and EMP Protection, Rebounders, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Pure Organic Sulphur, Flash Drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas Seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at VeritasRadio.com. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrich.
1: Howdy Mikoski is the author of several books including Exposing the Expositions, Revised in 2021, Falling for Truth, and the Power of Then, Revealing Egypt's Lost Wisdom. He has researched ancient civilizations, historical lies, mysticism, and alchemy for over 20 years. He was lucky enough to have spent time with a Korean monk and several native Indian medicine men. A near-death experience in 2005 changed his view of self and reality. He keeps working to understand the Plato's cave we exist in, as well as its exit. And from Western Norway, I'd like to welcome Howdy Nikoski. Hello, howdy, and welcome to Veritas. How are you?
2: Uh, I'm doing okay, thanks, Mel. It's very late at night here, but I've got a nice warm tea, so I should be ready to go and awake, and hopefully we have a very interesting conversation.
1: Thank you. For some reason, I expected a, a an European accent. Are you from America?
2: Uh, Canada, actually.
1: Okay, okay. Well, you're still from North America, actually.
2: Yeah, for, for now. We'll see how this plays out in the next, you know, few months if that continues, but... Well I guess now.
1: I guess you have a better world life in Norway right now as opposed to what we're experiencing in Canada, I guess, right?
2: Yeah, most most definitely. Um yeah, but the the flip side of it is that the uh, the population's very obedient, so you don't have to necessarily be as hard handed here because the population just follows along anyway. So it's it's um there's pluses and minuses to everything, right?
1: Is it the same thing that's happening in Norway? Because I know they have – I don't mean to bring this up, the, the whole COVID lockdowns. Uh, it's a different topic we're discussing tonight. But I heard that in, in Norway, Denmark, and Sweden, they have removed all the restrictions and mandates. Is that correct?
2: That's correct. Everything is – there's nothing now. Zero.
1: That's wonderful. I just hope that other countries just follow suit because this is becoming ridiculous. But I didn't mean to digress with that. Your subject is something that fascinates a lot of us. The expositions, exposing the expositions. Why did you write such a controversial book?
2: That's a really I knew when I wrote it actually it was going to be like this is this is going to stir up some controversy and so I had to really I took actually a few a few moments after I'd written it to say, "Do I really want to put this out?" And I said, "Yes, I, I, this is just too important." Um, I wrote it because um, you know I had written a book ten years ago or so, fifteen years ago, on on ancient Egypt and the ancient Maya and sort of uncovering the lies, some of the lies of archaeology. Um, and then I'd gone through. I wrote a book um, that came out two or three years ago that was on sort of a, a death experience that I had, and and in. After that had come out, I was in Florence and I was studying the cathedrals and I was I was trying to get a sense of how they worked as energy setters and, and I was I was sort of tracking the energy. And when I got back here home after that trip, I, I guess I was in a really good energy place. I was in a really good focus point and I bumped into these these expositions, specifically the, the Columbian exposition in Chicago in eighteen ninety three. And I was just pretty much blown away by what I had seen. It it just the the story of building 700, 1,000-acre sites in record time and then blowing them up with dynamite as soon as they were finished just seemed like something I had to investigate, and that's how it got started.
1: You mentioned the cathedral in Florence. I've been there and I've seen a lot of cathedrals in France and the rest of Europe. It always makes you wonder, were they really built for the purpose of what we see today or not? In fact, I just posted on Facebook this morning. A, the, the the post has hundreds of likes and shares, and it's about, we have on the left, I just wish people could see it. If you go to the website, I'm going to add it to the the link to this interview. But on the left, if you can imagine, is a modern day circuit board. And on mm-hmm. the right, I have a picture of the floor of the Cathedral of Our Lady of Chartres in, in France. And it is exactly the same on the floor. You probably are familiar with this image, are you?
2: Oh yeah, very much so.
1: So what do you think happened there? And should we change the word from cathedral to maybe cathodral?
2: Exactly. I can say that that was that became one of the later chapters in the book after I sort of started, after I went through and laid out some of the stories of these expositions, some of the, the the, the unbelievable history and, and, and breaking it down and going through the very weird things that were going on at these fairs. I tried to put a chapter or so at the end to try to, yeah, give an overview. And one of them was that um, th- th- these cathedrals are a really good example of what these ancient buildings, and by ancient I mean I think these buildings are much older than we give them credit for. And uh, there's no question they were built as machines. Um, they were definitely built to store Move, channel, and generate uh, energy. And uh, my time in Florence, and then trips after that, whether it be to Nantes or various other places, I was able to kind of test it, and and I got a sense of now what the cathedral, how the cathedrals actually operated. And yeah, they were they were energy centers, balancing centers. Um, they're actually pretty amazing places. Whatever we know of them, think of them as religion that came far after they were they were done. Very similar to. Things like the stone circles that I study all over uh, North America, or over uh, Europe, rather, here in Norway and Sweden, there's a lot of them. And same thing, they're thought of as places as Viking graves, but of course the graves came much, much later. These are the same as the original cathedrals, power spots, energy centers, that later on something else got added to them, and now that's what we think they are, but that's not their origin.
1: A lot of these architectural feasts uh, around the world, you see them, and if you're familiar with cymatics, You know, for the folks who are not familiar with it, you you put some powder or sand and you hit it with a certain frequency. And you can see these Mm -hmm. geometrical figures that are just absolutely beautiful. And if you look at these cathedrals, they had that. So I wonder, are you familiar with the 432 hertz and 440 hertz? Do you think there's a correlation here between these buildings and the fact that in the it was in the 1930s, but it wasn't until the 1950s that the standard international tuning frequency was changed from A432 to A440.
2: There there must be something to it. Now, of course, I don't know anyone who's actually gone and, and tested the, the tuning frequency, but of course, what we're talking about specifically with cymatics is is the rose windows. Not that, not of course, the church itself is making the, the, the patterns as well, but those rose windows... Um, you can find those various rose windows and all sorts of cymatic pattern. You can find the exact matches to in a sense know if you think of it the the cathedral seems to be generating an energy at least this is how this is how it felt for me when I was in um one of the cathedrals in Nantes, is is it comes into the center into the center point underneath the spire or the you know the ball or the dome, and then what it does is Cathedrals have the, have the long sort of central area, but they've also got these two outside uh, sort of side channels. Or ch- I, There's a name for them. I can't think of it. But it feels like the energy sort of circles around it. It's kind of circling the church is what it does. And my sense is when they play the organ, which, of course, is representing various – Frequencies of the body, right? The organs of the body. But when this is played, I think the energy is somehow jumps to the rose window and then is amplified through this cymatic pattern, whatever they've chosen as. So the energy becomes a specific cymatic wave that goes out into the rest of the city. It's when you start to see it in those terms, they become beautiful uh, monuments and uh, I don't I don't want to call them machines because they're 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 greater than a machine they are literally something energetically linked to the earth and the sky and to humans
1: I am told that after the tuning frequency was changed by the uh, the, the Philharmonic whatever association did this around the world and I believe this came all the way from uh, Goebbels and the Nazis because they didn't want people to be at peace because 432 is the 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 frequency that we need in order to be at peace and and, and harmony. But when it comes to these cathedrals, I am told that everywhere else the tuning frequency changed to 440, but it was left intact in churches and the organs so that when people go to the Christian church, they feel a religious experience when in fact this is the way it was for everywhere else.
2: That's an interesting comment. I, I mean, I, I, until you've mentioned this, I haven't, uh, you know, I haven't thought of checking the tune, you might say, the tuning quality of the of the organs of the churches of everything else. Uh it, it's a really good point. And of course, if we still had the world's fair buildings, I would be very curious to see cause I, I guarantee they were they were generating a frequency. I'm pretty much guaranteeing it would be it would be a, a harmonic if not what if not 432, it's at least it's at least making one of the solfaggio numbers, right? So, um, and if you if you've got a number of buildings each creating a different solfagio, then you're creating or just just in the architecture itself. You don't have to do anything else. You've created harmony just by what you built.
1: Exactly. Let's go with the expos now. When I look at these pictures, let's begin with Chicago, 1893. This image, which is the one that we're using, used on on, on the cover of your book. I'm using it mm-hmm. for the promotional of this this interview. You see this and you think you are in the middle of the Roman Empire. How is it that so many people say this is built in two years and it was demolished immediately after? It makes absolutely no sense.
2: No. And and again, when I first started, I thought I was just going to be writing a book on the Chicago Exposition. It didn't take me long until I realized these were happening all over the world, right? Not just in the United States. They were happening they were happening as well in Milan in Paris and London and the Philippines and South America, and basically, if you were anywhere in the world at this time period from about eighteen seventy to to nineteen ten you had a world's fair somewhere, and every single one is supposed to be building on a massive scale, building not even necessarily okay Chicago is seven let 's take Chicago like you say seven hundred acres that's two point eight square kilometers. And I've suggested in the book that just to give you a mental picture, because that's just a number in your head, put two, so like take a map in your, in your city you live in and mark out 2.8 square kilometers and then go walk it. Like just literally walk 2.8 square kilometers, then realize in 1891 they're supposed to have spent two years building massive structures, one of which the manufacturer's building could house 300,000 people, onto what you just walked. And that will give you more of the scale of what you're talking about of really, what's an impossible feat of building? Now, the, the the standard story, right? The historical narrative that that I that I've been working to attack with the book, and and that was started by some really good research, uh, researchers on YouTube, people like John Levy and uh, Martin and a few others. They had done some really good work years ago, and I just kind of took that in the next level and then and, and wrote it as a book. But the standard story is that. The reason these things were built so quickly is, A, they were built out of material called staff, which is a plaster and a wood combination, you know, very simplistic, cheap building materials. And two, that the workmen of 100 or 120 years ago had greater skill and craftsmanship than anyone had building today. So this is the standard story that we are given. Uh, But when we start to break that down, you look at something like the Buffalo Electric Tower in 1901, which is 325 feet high, had elevators in the middle of it that you could ride up and go to the top and look out over the Buffalo Exposition. You're going to build that out of plaster and wood <laughs> and likely have the whole thing collapse as soon as the first, ele- first two elevators takes people to the roof? Of course not. You have to build something like that out of, as a massive structure. So, once you start seeing the buildings and recognizing that there's elevators and people on the roof, and, and you know, the plaster and wood story starts to fall apart quickly. It fell apart on the other side. Um, you asked me why, how I wrote, really wrote the book, and I, for me, it was more just a, a curiosity until I had gone and met with a um, building contractor that I know here in Norway. And when I showed him the images and I asked him, Could you build this for me today? Unlimited budget. Uh, modern machinery, could you build the, the Columbian Exposition? And he said, yeah, I could build it. I said, how long is it going to take you? He said, well, it's going to take me two years just for the planning. You've got really intricate work here. You've got waterways. You've got lakes. You've got lagoons. You've got roads. You've got, you know, never mind the buildings. So two years to plan it. Then it's going to be two years we're going to need to do all the landscaping to get the water systems right, to get to get all the transportation systems right, and then give me about 10 or 12 years and we can get the buildings up. So I said, like, 15 years with modern machines, modern buildings, modern modern everything. He said, yeah. And when I told him, they, they say this took two years in 1891, he, his, his only response was, no, not possible. And that's when I realized we really got something here.
1: That's incredible. And, yeah, a lot of people, when you post a lot of these images and, and explanations on the Internet, they start saying, oh, that was just, you know, I know my city. They're telling me that is plaster. But it makes absolutely no sense. What would they even make it look the way it is with plaster? And could they hold so many people with elevators when it's made of plaster?
2: Exactly. Now I don't doubt that there are buildings at these fairs made of plaster. I mean I, I, I mean we're looking at we're looking at two things. Once you start recognizing that the two year story is impossible, I and mean, we can if you want, we can go into that part of it as the interview goes on and really discuss why the two year building project specifically just make doesn't hold water. But when you see that that we have photographs of all of these events, I don't believe any of the photographs are you know faked in any way, shape or form. These are all original photographs from all over the world, fair after fair after fair. So we had expositions, guaranteed. The question is either a, did they have a technology that they're not supposed to have that we don't know about, almost like a a three d printing or some kind of technology that could could put really strong structures up really quickly? Or two, that had to, it has to mean that the most a lot of the buildings were already there, uh, a part of an ancient civilization that were just cleaned up, refurbished, repainted, which is something you could do in a two- or three-year time frame. If you just have to paint buildings, that's really different than having to actually construct them.
1: Not only that, but when you look at that time of, of our history, the United States, South America, especially Brazil that has some of these uh, monuments as well. I don't think that our governments were as, as um, what's the word I want to use? I don't want to say rich, but they were not as wealthy as they are maybe today. So why would they build so many of these buildings to just destroy them later? It just makes absolutely no sense to me.
2: And even more so when you consider that actually the people funding them is not really the government; it is the uh, what you would call the the, the robber barons, right. right? The the railroad and the steel barons in the U.S. They're the ones who are who are fronting the bill for this, and all of them lost money, big amounts of money. Like the uh, the 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 fair in Philadelphia, which was the first huge one in the U.S. I think it lost four million dollars. Like that's a massive amount of money for 1876, and yet they thought this is a good idea. We're going to do this again and again and again, and they all kept losing money. And one of the things we know about the rich, one of the reasons the rich get rich is because they don't lose money. They don't waste money. Everything they do is earning them money. So why do you want to keep having massive events like this that lose you money and give you no assets when you're at, when you're finished with it? I mean, the other thing that's so strange is, of course, every one of these cities has gone through some sort of city fire, which is another strange historical right. Uh, explanation on top of it but if you take Chicago well Chicago is supposed to have a whole lot of the city burned down in 1871 so it needs buildings like you need you, you need you need new structures so why would you build something up to destroy it San Francisco another example is supposed to be completely destroyed from the earthquake in 1906 but let's start building these expositions and then destroy the buildings when we're done when they need to build buildings why don't you just multipurpose? you build a building for the fair and then it stays later on and becomes... Something else that would make sense. So everything about these things make no logical sense whatsoever.
1: Before I get back to the fires, because this is important, Well, how much did you say that the Philadelphia Expo lost?
2: I'm pretty sure it was $4 million. $4 million. In 1876. In 1876.
1: I have a calculator here that's telling me that that is the equivalent of $102 million as of today's money. So you can... Thinking in your mind. Do you really think these rubber barons were losing money for nothing, or is it because they wanted to change our past somehow?
2: Yeah, I can tell you, it's um, uh, one of the one of the writer because every one of these fairs also had one of the reasons that the research for me was so interesting is because every one of these fairs, right after it was done, had a historian of the day write like a three or four thousand page book about the fair. And they're all on the internet. You can go if you're interested. You can read like seven or eight books printed out like the year or two after the Columbian Exposition or after St. Louis or and it's it not only gives you the history they want to present of the world, the history they want to present of that city, the history they want to present of that fair, it also goes and lists basically every single thing that you could find at the exposition. Every restaurant, every painting, every statue, every piece of technology, every roadway. I mean the books are like living documents of almost indoctrination. And, and when I read one of these books about – because you're talking about Philadelphia. So when they asked about all this losing money, the, the historian wrote, it's not on the basis of dollars and cents that success was estimated. Okay, then what is? Because like you say, you start losing that kind of money, you've got to have a real reason why you're going to keep doing that over and over again.
1: There's a movie – I forgot exactly what the title was, but I saw some clips recently. And it's about the St. Louis Purchase Exposition. And uh, the, it, is it St. Louis? Uh, no, the Louisiana meet, Purchase. Meet,
2: yeah, Meet Me in St. Louis, I think is the name of the movie.
1: There you go. There you go. The Louisiana Purchase Exposition, the St. Louis one. W- w- something strange with what they're saying in that movie. Can you expound?
2: Oh, uh, <clears throat> well, I didn't go in depth in the movie. What was it in the movie that really caught you? Um, in the end exactly. when
1: they're saying something along the lines they have always been here in other words oh. what you see there was not built it has always been here or it's been here longer than we're told
2: there's there's so many of these little cryptic comments that make it into the into the books of the day yeah little things that on the surface you could say well I think they're saying they're just saying one thing but um, they it's almost like they're they're probably saying something else, and I don't doubt that they're they're slipping these ideas. Um, I'm just I'm just trying to find one here. Uh, like, like often the books say that they they call them magical, or the way the things went, the way the buildings went up was magical in nature. They use that word a lot for different fairs, and so are they being serious? Like you know, I mean, okay, I gave two examples, but I mean. You have to, oh, we don't know what's going on. We have to open the door to all sorts of possibilities, whether they're built in a parallel reality, whether, yeah, they're built with magic, they're built with, you know, who knows? And um, I think that's one of the problems when we're dealing with a historical uh, time period, even one where we have photographs from it, is that, you know, I, I certainly can never say I know for sure what happened at these things. I don't. I wasn't there. I wasn't taking photographs personally. I wasn't walking around. All I can do is take the narrative that we're given and say, "Does the narrative hold water?" You know, I've got my degree in history, and that's that's kind of how we were sorta trained. And I wished I would, I wished I was more, had been more uh, intensive questioning when I was actually in university. I would have liked to have heard what my professors had to say to more questions. But still, the point was was take take what you're given and prove it. And most of history, when we do that, you find that it doesn't hold out very well. But but that doesn't mean we get an answer. It doesn't mean a mad, the, the, the solution appears. All we can do is start making some ideas. And that's why we need so many researchers. That's why you need so many different people being involved in this, because I might find one thing, you might find something else, somebody else might find a third thing, and then together, 10 or 20 of us can put all the little jigsaw puzzle pieces together when um, we finally figure it out as a group. You, I, I think trying to figure it out alone will never work.
1: And obviously we're going to go through ridicule for a very long time but in the end, hopefully, <laughs> those who laugh might say one day well, I guess you were right after all. But that's okay. I mean, we it comes with the territory. I'm looking at the last quote from the movie Meet Me, Me in St. Louis and it says this Esther says about the Palace of Electricity of the World Fair. Oh, isn't it breathtaking, John? I never dreamed anything could be so beautiful. And Mrs. Smith says there's never been anything like it in the whole world. And Rose says, we don't have to come here on train or stay in a hotel. It's right in our hometown. And Tootie says, Grandpa, they'll never tear it down, will they? And Grandpa says, well, they better not. And lastly, Esther says, I can't believe it. Right here where we live. Right here. In Saint Louis, what do you make of these
2: quotes? <laughs> it's very interesting. I mean, obviously, <sighs> okay. How, how to how to how to describe this? Why I think the fairs became so important? Uh, as I wrote this book in 2019, that was the original writing of it, and then I, I revised it. I revised the book. Um, a few months ago. So the, the the book that's available now is a revised version. But I was writing this before any of our stuff and that we're going through now was happening. I, I wrote this when things were still relatively normal. And I didn't realize until about the summer of 2020 that I may have written, I may have bumped into the period of the last reset, that the World's Fairs may have been the indoctrination or the building blocks or the the propaganda machine of of the world that's going to be was going to be set into place the world that we have known since since we've been born may have been actually uh, conceived and presented at the at these world's fairs and so when i hear quotes like that it's this idea of it's highly likely that Maybe the population that actually went to these things, because there's millions of people, like two million people went to the one in Omaha. I don't know what the population of Omaha was at the time, like 70,000 people. So I don't know where two million people show up to go to a World's Fair in Omaha, Nebraska. But it's highly likely that maybe they're literally almost like mind wiped and they're starting fresh. And imagine if you're starting relatively fresh and you walk into the World's Fair of St. Louis. Holy cow. It's going to – you know. It would be like the the first day you show up, sort of out of the womb, and you can talk. They send you to the pyramids, and that's your first uh, your first experience of the world in in uh, in Egypt. Like that's going to shape your mind. And I I really get a sense that these fairs, like once you start to see what's going on in them, how they're presented, the things they're presenting, and the way they're presenting them, it would be a good way of 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 uh, presenting propaganda when you don't have television and movies and the internet yet. And you just—that could be an, an example of why you have these things all over the world, all looking the same, all looking like it's right out of Greece and Rome. It's a—it's a tool of—it's a tool of propaganda for the population. Howdy,
1: I'm looking at the Trans-Mississippi Exposition, which, as you well said, was in Omaha, Nebraska, and at the time there were what is it here—one hundred and two thousand five hundred inhabitants in omaha nebraska but they attracted two points allegedly 2.6 million people in the middle of nowhere that makes right. no sense
2: and when you start thinking never mind the, the fair where, where are they going to stay like like exactly where are they sleep yeah there's uh, wh- where are they going to get their food from where are they going you know all of these things you know no one thinks about well where did all they would have had to have built? I mean, if that's true, then they would have had to build like what fifty hotels, fifty giant massive hotels? Well, where did the hotels come and go i I've never seen anything with stuff like that. so all of the stories begin to you know really, really it doesn't matter where you dig they they like this it's just everything you look at is like what's what's what and um hopefully, once you present enough of this stuff to people, they kind of have to finally break down and go. Well, maybe this crazy guy's onto something, and maybe there's something weird with these fares.
1: I'm looking here. The average hotel today, maybe in the past it was even less. The average hotel is about three hundred hotel rooms. Two point six million. Let's say it's couples and children going two point six million MGC. Divided by three hundred. They would need at least at least five to six thousand hotels. Yeah. And so Honestly, and when it comes to the fires, let me just address the fires now. I remember going to New York, the great fire of New York. Go to New Orleans, mm. the great fire of New Orleans. San Francisco, the great, you always hear these in big cities, the great fire. But you wonder what would cause a great fire for, to the entire city. And if you look at those, at the pictures that are still available about those fires, you really don't see how they happened, while they will be
2: burnt. No, it's uh, – again, I showed my, the building contractor the photos because he's he's seen fires. He's had to deal with rebuilds and, you know – I mean, this is what he does. He he, he's a, he constructs large structures all his life, right? And he looked at the – first thing when he looked at the photos, he said, well, who bombed this city? That's the first thing he said. I mean because they look like Dresden and they look like Dresden in 1944. They don't look like just some fire has gone through. You know, you're seeing – you're, and you're seeing brick, uh, uh, brick and stone and granite melted. Like, what kind of temperature do you have to get to to actually melt those kind of materials? And and you're seeing uh, also cement or or, or or like you know stone structures that have literally been sheared in two, almost like it's been cut with lasers. Uh, it, it, they are some of the strangest photographs imaginable. But then like the trees and the telephone telephone lines are all standing in place, no problem. So everyone, and, and, and that's the thing. Every single city has one. It's supposed to be from about eighteen, you know, twenty or thirty to about eighteen, eighty, ninety or so. Every, sorry, same story. Every city, big fire starts by some really strange uh, occurrence, like oh, the cow knocks over the knocks over the candle, and you know something goofy, and then the, most of the city burns down, and then there's these magic rebuilds, like where in in a year's time the whole city is back perfect uh seattle and portland and a few of the cities out west have the most magical rebuild stories um and it's it's just the same and i i really started stepping back from it i started saying well what if the what if the city fires are all true what if the city fires though didn't happen over a hundred year period what if they happened over like a two or three year period for real and they had to if they told you they happened over a two or three year period everybody would instantly say well they're not accidental fires there's you know there's like that's probably a war going on and so you have to start saying are we seeing what are called now city fires the remnants of some gigantic world war that has been sort of pulled out from our history a war that decimated the population and and perhaps that's what sent in north america anyway the native indians on the run that perhaps the Native Indian cultures were never really nomadic plains dwellers. They were they were blown out of their cities where they used to live, where they used to have as their homes, and and pushed into the into the prairies by some sort of some sort of other warfare before even the warfare to, to exterminate them. And I wished I, I had spent some time with Native medicine men, learning from them uh, twenty years ago. Really, really wonderful people. I'm very thankful for what they shared with me. But of course, I wish I could go see them right now and ask these kind of questions. Are there stories in your mythology? Are there stories in your old history that speak of large these kinds of cities and places that were either connected to you or that were connected to someone else that you were friends with, traded with? I'd really like to know what the, what the native oral tra- uh, tradition and mythology might say about the possibility of the age of these cities.
1: Yes, because if these buildings were here and we were just given the story that someone built them for an expo and then to destroy them after, then I would like to know what their positions were during that time. Were they part of the building of these structures? Were they part of uh, the development of these structures? Or were they just transient nomadic, nomadic tribes that just passed along?
2: Right. And of course, you've got like the area of the south, like the southern U.S. especially had a tremendous number of these old Greek Roman style buildings. And the the pictures we have or the picture, the paintings we have of the Cherokee, the sort of the Cherokee chiefs and whatever, they don't look like any native Indians I've ever seen. They look more like they're right out of, you know, Paris or or Germany, you know, like they are dressed like any. French nobility, or you'll see lots of images looking very Greek-Roman. I'm sure you've seen a lot of that as you've traveled around, where you see uh, so many images of the founding fathers of the U.S., be they George Washington or Ben Franklin or whoever, wearing togas, or in obvious Roman garb, and it's, oh, are they just trying to associate them? You know, the normal answer, are they just trying to associate them with sort of the this Roman and Greek ideal, or were they really Roman and Greek- <laughs> uh, individuals that uh, has had history change who they are,
1: and that begs the question: Howdy, what was there west of the thirteen colonies?
2: Yeah, what was even there in the thirteen colonies? Right. What was? Right. Uh, it, it's so, you know. Like I say, I, I studied history as a, a, and I was, I, I kind of believed a lot of what I would was taught years ago, but then. As I started writing my book on 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 ancient Egypt and and the ancient civilizations, I've certainly began to see that that uh, most of what we know of as archaeology is a, is a is a complete lie, and that lie is somehow I realized was to take away the the knowledge of human power, the knowledge of what humans were able to, what what sort of the the level of the human mind and the level of the human spirit could achieve and could do and could live. That if you take that away, if you downplay it and make them um, uh, you know, copper tool holding savages. Then, then we won't look to the past. We won't look to these memories. But I, I had, I had thought for a long time that our, our, say, the last two, three, four hundred years of history was true. I had really believed for, there, there was definitely Napoleon. There was a Waterloo. There was a U.S. Civil War. There was a Russian Revolution. There's now, after studying these world fairs and everything connected to them, I'm not really sure about anything anymore.
1: I cannot agree with you more. And to some people, this may sound ridiculous, but I'll repeat it. That makes me question the existence of Christopher Columbus. I've mentioned many times how he was not a fisherman from Genoa, Italy. If in fact he was a person, I've said it before, I met a professor at a university of Arizona when I moved here in the 90s, and she took me on the side at the end of a social gathering and she said, I want to speak with you because you seem to be very inquisitive. And she told me, you realize that Christopher Columbus was not Italian and he was not a fisherman. He was a Sephardic Jew from Barcelona, Spain. And the night that he departed with the three ships was the night where the kingdom gave the Jews the option to convert or leave. Well, he left that night and he asked for Mm -hmm. 10% of the royalties or what have you. But it makes you wonder if that really even happened. But you mentioned an interesting word, the firestorm. Firestorm yeah. of these, these cities looking like Dresden. And I remember interviewing Thomas Goodrich. He wrote a book called Hellstorm, which was about mm. the firebombing of Dresden. And this is exactly what it looks like. And it makes you wonder if after these expos, what do we get? World War One, World War Two, And they almost attempted to erase from our history books all those buildings or the majority at least
2: yeah i mean or or is what we know is world war 1 is that really world war 2 II or 3 or 4 that there were really 2 II or 3 before that yeah. because everything about this time frame now to me everything now between say 1860 and 19 you know 20 is is like as it, it's like it's so weird once you start looking into that time period how many weird things show up hg uh, wells wrote war of the worlds in in 1894 is he writing a science fiction novel or is he writing a documentary
1: that's exactly right and you we know, know what happened in the 1930s they're, they're, yeah
2: you know uh so so uh, like i say and the other weird thing to really think about which which um and, and it was other i mean there's been so many good researchers like i don't want anyone to think like it's just me. I did all of this research myself. I did a lot of work on this. I Nine months I spent digging into this. But thankfully, there were others that were doing some good stuff as well. And One of the things that one of the researchers sh- shared with me was if you look to everything in our world today from the standpoint of systems specifically, government, education systems, medical systems, uh, commercial systems, it doesn't matter – you tend to find that their real origin is sometime in the late 1800s. That that's when they finally – or when they say they, they they have evolved to a certain point where they they have the modern look to them. And of course, they give a history of, you know, oh, the money system goes back like this and this government system goes back. But really, it's this time period, like after 1850, where what we know of as our world was, manufactured, was, was sort of being put in place. And I'm really starting to wonder, yeah, that might be completely true. And so – was what the hell happened before like this period of the Fairs is did, you know is any of that history true uh was were 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 we kind of in a sense wiped out because this is also the time frame when we've got these orphan trains right these massive numbers of tens of thousands of orphans from the US east coast I wanted to
1: ask you about the orphan trains but I didn't know if you were going to discuss it good
2: yeah, so, and, and so here we have all these orphans, right, just being shipped out west with no explanation of who they are, where they come from, uh, what the story is on them. And at the exact same moment, the world is building these giant insane asylums. And these insane asylums are bigger than Medici palaces in Florence. They are opulent and giant. They'd be holding 10, 20,000 people. So where are all these insane people all of a sudden showing up worldwide in the 1870s and 1880s that you need these buildings for them? it would make sense if there was some form of what we're now calling by this word reset really seeing what this word might be might be really entailing the best way if you if you wipe out a large amount of population is to repopulate it with a lot of children because they will of course believe what they're told they'll be very easy to program and anyone who's older that doesn't still remembers the old ways and doesn't want to go along with the with the new ways well they just into the insane asylum until you change your mind and I wouldn't, I can't prove any of that, of course, but that would not surprise me if that turned out to be an answer of what we're looking at in this time period. And that's why I feel it's so important for where we are right now, because there's so many parallels between the period, the time of the World's Fairs, and where we are.
1: And you see all these children, all of these pictures of children, you know, dark from the coal mines, or the factories, or... The, the shipyards, they're all working, and we're told now, well, this is why we have child exploitation laws and blah, blah, blah. That's the the, the idea that they give us. Right. But it makes you wonder, because this only, as far as I know, these orphan trains happened a lot in the United States. I don't know if it happened in Europe as well, but it's almost as if they were planning for this continent to be the world empire for the 19th and 20th century. And then they, went, they wanted to repopulate the world with people who only followed one narrative. And how do you do that? As you said, put all the parents in a insane asylum in all these, but they look to be like palaces and castles. But yeah. bring all these kids here, brainwash them with new history, and no one will will remember what really happened in the past.
2: Right. Because realistically, you would not be putting kids in a coal mine if you had able-bodied adults to exactly. do the job. They're going to do... And they might say, oh yeah, well we can we can uh, chart, okay, pay them nothing, and so we get their labor for nothing. But yeah, you can pay a little bit for you know a 35 year old guy, and he's going to get a lot more work done for you, and uh, and ensure that the you know your you, your profits are even better. So it makes you wonder. Maybe that's all, all they had. The reason the kids are working is because that was all they had to use, and um, and so it makes you wonder. Well. Then where did all the adults go? What happened to them? And that takes us to the picture, these weird pictures we have of the cities in the particularly the 1860s, 1870s, um, where you have these giant panoramas of cities, whether it be St. Petersburg or San Francisco, or you know, and there's no people. Empty. Not just that there's no people. There's no horses. There's no carts. There's no dogs. There's no cats. Nothing. It's it, and there's no there's no horse poop on the ground anywhere. There's the one that got me about San Francisco because somebody's they always try to oh you know they had these long exposures and they they had to make sure that everybody stayed inside for right. the thirty minutes that you know you're gonna keep fifty thousand horses which is what a city of like the city size of San Francisco is going to be using fifty thousand horses still and out of the picture for for an entire day? You're not you just you're not gonna be able to do that. There's no way. And what's more bizarre, and I, I suggest you go look at this yourself. It's known as the Edward Muya Bridge Panorama. Just put San Francisco Panorama like 1887 I think it is into your into your search box. And you'll come up with this unbelievable photograph of what's supposed to be San Francisco in 18 yeah seventy seven or eighteen seventy eight. Just an opulent, massive beautiful city with domes and spires and things that look like they're in downtown Moscow and no building is going on no construction of any no repairs are going on no painting is going on there's no ladders uh standing up to this is supposed to be a boom city this is supposed to be they can't keep building things fast enough for the people moving there there's zero building going on in a in a city that's supposed to be uh have horses as the main transportation look really closely on the streets You'll find no hitching posts. So every place where you're using horses will have to have a hitching post so your horse don't run away. But they have none. So what the hell are we looking at?
1: I'm looking at those pictures here. I haven't seen those pictures before, Howdy, so thank you for referring me to yeah. those. But the one thing also, what about the mud flood? What do you know about that?
2: Well, I mean, I know that's that's become a word that has uh, that is um, – can be a bit touchy for some people, in that if, if for anyone who doesn't know what that's referring to um in a sense there there are a lot of images first of all from the past of cities that seem to be buried in 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 mud certain to be you know thick with with uh, covered with dirt and, and some more I even mean, more than others but even when you look at pictures of Rome in the 1930s it looks like they're they're digging the city out um Portland, or Portland and Seattle are also really good examples of cities that seem to be really, really uh, buried in mud. And so the, uh, the theory has sort of come to explain it is that there was some sort of worldwide catastrophe, which is possible. I mean, I'm not saying – we can't say that, yes, the population died out by specific nefarious means by some controlling group. There, there could just be periods of time where grand solar minimums or, or uh, certain events between sky and Earth create – havoc down here and and so uh one of the suggestions is that mud was released worldwide and sort of covered these old cities um and then what was happening later a hundred years later when the next group was coming in what we know as the in in the u.s let's say for example the uh the uh, founders founders right uh the uh, ones who were finding things, they call it found dead, right? You found dead a city, you found a city dead, uh, as opposed to an empty piece of land, you may have actually found a buried city. So the, the, that's, that's the, the main presentation of, of, of this, that the, the, some sort of worldwide events, either, either created naturally or created by some force, people, beings, whatever, uh, created a, a worldwide um uh, river of mud, you might say, or or worldwide flood of mud. Now, for me, I see that this is very, and I, I've I, I've gone through, I've studied as well. I, I've gone through and looked at uh, various um, places here in Europe where you can see really strange windows at street level and buildings that are not on that you are not on the right angles at how you would build on a on a on a on a slope street. And so, for me though, mud flood that word is an it, to me is an all-purpose word for. Some sort of catastrophe that potentially took a very old, ancient, thriving city and uh, destroyed it. So, it, for me, it could be mud, it could be fire, it could be uh, it could be pestilence, it could be anything. To me, so for me, that word is much is much grander than just mud. So, I just want to let people know that. But that that's normally when you hear that word, it's generally referring to that one specific idea of what's happened to these cities. Um, the next thing that links to uh, these cities that also are, are have long been destroyed is what's known as star forts. And almost yes. every city in the world, certainly the old ones in, in Europe, and you can find ones in North America as well, all originally were in star patterns. And It's not just stars from the standpoint of defense, like people think it goes back to cymatic. So when you start looking at various cymatic wave patterns and you, and you take the, the mandala patterns and you just, you, you drop it down. And when you see the old city maps, it's the exact same thing. Like you, you there, here's the cymatic again and here's the star fort. So when you're, when people try to say they're defensive positions for cannons, I think that's a really, simplistic view of what we're looking at i think again we're looking at an energetic structure and those biblical stories of the walls of jericho being taken down by trumpets might be very true and things like uh, star fort design might be might be some sort of energetic uh, an energetic block to what might be what you might call an uh, um, emf kind of frequency attack and um, i think that's what we would have been seeing as well with these cities
1: but what do we even call them forts like here in the united states most of the ancient remnants are called forts like fort this fort that uh, after the eradication of the native population but what why do you think they're considered forts did they have some kind of defensive uh, defense uh, purpose
2: i think they did have a defense purpose like i said from the standpoint of creating uh, uh because normally what what you would if you would look at the older um <clears throat> the older uh, diagrams of the cities. Um, uh, Martin is uh, over at Flatter British is really good with showing these. So is uh, uh, Campbell over at Autodidactic. Didactic. Uh, they're really good at showing these these uh, old old. Um, Books from the 16, 1700s, and you will see the what we see of as the Star Fort. It may even be still existing today. It's now a historical monument. It's there somewhere near the city, in the middle of the city, near the water. But what you would notice that there would have been layers upon layers of like a wave uh, of star waves, sort of going further and further and further and further. And so, for me, I think they it was a fortification in the sense of an energetic wave pattern. That if you go back to the thinking of like. Um, not just the the Bible stuff, but things from the the Old Testament. But uh, I know when I was in Egypt, I learned very quickly that the the ancient Egyptian healing temples were all built to create a specific frequency. They were building an energetic harmonic frequency that even today, even though the temple is not fully active, it still resonates at such a level that if I'm not feeling well when I walk in, I'm feeling absolutely fine when I walk out. And so these star forts were probably not just individually, they were probably linked through the Earth's uh, grid system to the Earth's, uh, the equivalent of the Earth's um, magnetic field slash um, uh, acupuncture meridians almost of the Earth, and that these forts are similar to, uh, to acupuncture needles on your body, and so they are creating at the exact right point, the exact right frequency that, if, if an energetic wave or a pattern or a a, a type of frequency that the people who live there didn't want, potentially it could have been blocked. Although as we can obviously tell, because they didn't last, it obviously didn't last forever. They they had a finite, if that's true, if what I just said is true, there was obviously then a finite time when the the protection no longer worked. And what was it that, what was it that finally broke the defenses? I don't know, but that that would be, that would be my theory as to what you're seeing with the original star fort um, design.
1: And this wrench part is that these star forts are all over the place. They're in Southeast Asia. They're in Europe. They're in the United States. They're everywhere. They don't look the same, but they have the same patterns everywhere, which leads me to believe that at one point in our history, maybe in the not too distant past, there was a uniform language, architecture the way we lived, and then we see all these images of cities that are completely, as you say, devoid of all people, from animals. And I've seen that analysis as somebody, I don't know if he was trying to debunk Tartaria or what we're trying to discuss here, but saying that at the time, these cameras, we'd have to stay there for maybe minutes or if not hours, so the people would never show there. I mean, that doesn't make sense to me, because at least you should see some blurriness of figures coming in and out.
2: Yeah, you, you can't keep everybody still in an entire city for hours. Some are going to just do it. Some are going to say, you know, screw you. I'm going on the street anyway. You know, there's going <laughs> to be right. some. And yeah. the fact that these have zero, none, or I get in the San Francisco one, you can actually find, I think you can find like five or six people and you can find a couple of horse carts if you look really carefully, but that's it. Um, so yeah, I, I, I that really the, the basis of my first book, uh, Power Then, the Egypt book was showing this um, symbolic language this this alchemic um, language that was part of the ancient world that if you could if you could begin to understand the, the symbolism if you knew what a bee represented if you knew what a pine cone represented if you know what these things were then you could start taking apart any ancient text any religious text any ancient building any ancient set of reliefs or statues and you could start you could start in a sense reading because it was the same, like you say, all over the world. It wasn't – the symbol meant one thing here and one thing somewhere else. It was a universal language. And once you understand this universal symbolic language, you would be able, you could start unraveling just about anything that was put in front of you. That was the, the – I guess the foundation of, of what was the message that was in that book. And of course, architecture in this sort of phase we're talking about of these kind of sort of Greco-Roman-style buildings – are also the same thing. They are a type of alchemic language in in stone and in proportion and in in specific geometric shapes and patterns that are, if you if you know the language, then you you can read what's there.
1: And it happened all over the place. And by the way, thank you again for referring us to the Panorama of San Francisco. If you want to Google the folks, Edward M- Muybridge, M U Y yeah. bridge. 1878, what I want you to look, folks, if you find the actual panorama picture, he took pictures every 15 minutes for a number of hours. And I'm just opening it here. I'm looking at the whole thing. And I'm looking because he, he took it from the Wilson Mansion, which was the highest point in San Francisco. And you look at the city, there's nothing else to build. And at that time, weren't people going from the east to the west to find gold and just you know, create more cities. This seems all done.
2: It's, and it's huge. I mean, once, yeah, once you see the whole thing as one, like rolled out sheet of paper, what's there? 500,000 of space for 500,000 people. And, all beautiful st- – I mean look at some of the beautiful building and the and the, and the clean st- – I mean style. This is supposed to – in 1849, it's just – that's when – or 1847 is when San Francisco is supposed to have first been taken over by the US when there's nothing there but a fort right. and, uh, and a market. And you're saying in 30 years, you've got that? You know, this that is, that's one of the smoking guns of history. This what is that, probably – Panorama is a smoking gun of history.
1: This is probably, as you say, the smoking gun to me, because this is the first time, and for the not too technically oriented, when you click on the picture, you're going to see it very small on your computer. I want you to click on it, because it's going to maximize, and I want you to navigate from left to right, and take a look at those buildings. I mean, I'm just navigating here, and my mouth is open, looking at this, thinking, look at these, what they look to be the cathedrals. One right next to each other, not next to each other. How much money did we have back then to be able to make all these buildings in the late 1800s?
2: Yeah. And I guess you've seen the one with like the onion dome towers, like the ones you would find in Moscow. Yes, St. Petersburg. Yeah. Um, It's also the question of supposedly, right? You're saying it's miners and cowboys, right? That's the story. Miners and cowboys are flooding to San Francisco. Well, miners and cowboys need pretty simplistic you know, lodging. They don't need what you're seeing there. And, uh, to me, this, this is almost, when I saw this panorama, the first thing I thought of is those cities in China, you know, the cities that have been built and there's no people and they're just waiting for the right time to ship them in for whatever reason they're going to do that. I mean, that's again, because there are no, there is no building or I've got it up myself so I can see it with you here there is no building there's no there's no refurbishing there's like I say there's no painting there's no scaffolds there's no ladders there's nothing going on in the entire city and if you're going to say well we didn't want a ladder in this fantastic photograph you're going to be able to keep all the ladders (laughs) off the buildings for a a population of 500,000 people or something Whatever's actually would be in this photograph but look at the streets the streets are are almost empty yeah it's uh, it, 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 to to me this was one of, yeah. To me this was one of these ones that just was uh, jaw draw, actual jaw dropping of like, and again I showed this this is another thing I showed to the building contractor, and I again he's you know he doesn't really know history that much. He has sort of a general knowledge of everyone else. He likes history, but when I gave him the time frames, of oh yeah, there's supposed to be nothing here in 1847, and then this is what they got in 18 1877. He's like. Well, this is the equivalent of building the pyramids in Egypt because this is impossible. Like just just the logistics of thinking: where does all this material come from? How do you how do you quarry it, ship it, get it here? When this is another fun one for people. This is uh, for, for particularly for those of you in the United States who who have a chance to listen to, the, to, to this because because the U.S. has an advantage in the weirdness because your hist- your your country is supposed to be so young compared to Europe. You know, if there's a big building in in, in Prague or Budapest, well, they say, well, they've been building for a thousand years. They're supposed to be. But when you look at state capital buildings, and particularly state capital buildings in the western US, whether it be like Idaho or Iowa or Nebraska or I mean, you look at the building And its it looks like St. Peter's in Rome. I mean, it, it is a massive structure, usually built in like 1830 or 1840, 1850. And when you see the early, go find the earliest photograph you can find of your state capitol building, you'll probably notice there are no roads. It's just, it's a mud plain and this fantastic thing that looks like it should be in downtown Rome. And of course, any building person with any knowledge whatsoever, the first thing you would do before you built the building... You'd build a road. You would, of course, build a road to easily move your all the materials that you need in and out. You wouldn't drag them across a, a muddy uh, swamp when you don't have to. But there are no roads. So again, every time you look and dig into this stuff, you find another another problem and another problem and another problem. And it just makes you start throwing the whole narrative in the garbage.
1: Same thing happens with, the, for example, the historic photos of the Lincoln Memorial. There's absolutely nothing (laughs) around it. There's just grass, grass everywhere. And there's this massive Greco-Roman building right there in the middle of nowhere. Now, the question is, all these pictures that show them being built, was that the old version of Photoshopping in the old days?
2: Well, when, when we take it back to the World's Fair, so we, we do have construction photos of a lot of the fairs. And there are photos of, of which, again, I am going to 100% say they're actually building structures that are plaster and wood. There are definitely pictures of that happening. So I don't doubt that – You know, I don't want anyone to say that, oh, like the Chicago Exposition, they found the whole thing and they just painted. No, no, no. They, a lot of that stuff had to be built. I, I've seen the photos myself. Um, for sure they so for sure they were building now, the question becomes, did they build all of it, or because if you build one building, a smaller a smaller replica of something huge beside it, paint it the same same way, paint it with the same uh, covering it'd be hard to tell the difference between one and the other. now, so we do have construction photos, but when we look at the construction photos of the main buildings that 's when it becomes different. so St. Louis is the best. Um, exposition for construction photos. So if you're looking for construction photos of a fair, that's the one I'd recommend you you find. It's St. Louis 1904. And and you get similar photos, though, with the other ones, which will be a near-completed building in the background, these giant things like the electrical building or the manufacturer's building. And maybe the roof, you can see construction happening on the roof. A dome is being either put up or just finished. And all there will be on the side is scaffolding. So there will just be scaffolding on the side of the building, and it will just be like a giant mud pit around it. Again, I showed these photos to the, the building contractor, and the first thing he said is, "I don't know what I'm looking at." But first of all, where's the bathrooms? You're going to need like 60,000 workers. Well, where are the bathrooms for these guys? are going to have to go. Where's who's feeding them? Where's the where's the example that there's food moving around? Where's the uh, uh, a wrapper on the ground with some a sandwich? Where's an where's a somebody's cup from some water he was drinking? There's like nothing, and he said there's no building materials at the site even for all of this scaffolding you're seeing you're going to need hundreds or thousands of pieces of wood well you have to have your supply close to where you're building it you don't put the supply somewhere far away and walk the wood you you have this you have the supply right next to where you're building there's no supply of wood there's no nothing there's no he just said I don't know what I'm looking at but I can pretty much say no one's been working here for a year or two and these are supposed to be the construction photos of these fairs so again when you start looking at the construction photos they become extremely dubious um, but again that's not to say because I will get you know people questioning and they will find photographs of what looks like a building being constructed and I'll say yeah some things I agree were constructed the question is is all of it constructed or like I'm just looking at some of the ones here in front of me and again it's just like it's a completed building with some scaffolding well where's the picture of them actually building it <laughs> they, they're just not to be found
1: we have to take our one and only break but let me just bring up one detail before we break. It's the Ponce de Leon Hotel in St. Augustine, Florida, the oldest city in the... right. Right? And this was 540 rooms. And when it was inaugurated, we're talking about the First Lady and a bunch of other, you know, government officials and dignitaries around the world. But I believe there was only one or two bathrooms for the entire hotel. And same thing with the... The Palace of Versailles in Paris—it had just a few bathrooms, and how many thousands of rooms? What? What's your explanation about this?
2: Uh, these are really that's the same as because uh, as you, know, you read the books, so you know I went through and, and looked at the Domus Aurea in uh, in um, Rome, which I think yes. Nero's palace, which I think was the in some way either a model one way or another for what these fairs were, and the same thing. Nero's uh, Nero's Domus Aurea had no bathrooms. They had no kitchens either. They had no places for anybody to sleep. Um, so you have to start wondering well, okay, what if these stories, and I, I've, I've gone and read these books, you know, about the guys that say they can live off sunlight or that they don't actually need to eat. They, you know, they eat like one meal a month or something. Prana. And, 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 and I've started wondering, what if that's true? Uh, what if that could have been true? You, you would have almost no defecation. You wouldn't really need bathrooms if. You didn't have to eat if you were getting your energy somehow through the ether or some other – I'm not saying that's true, but that's – there's no other explanation. You'd, you'd have to have some kind of – some kind of ba- especially when you say well, Palace of Versailles, oh, they just use outdoor – these outdoor holes. Yeah. But you've got running water. There's running water going through the whole thing, and there's running water at the time it was built. So if you have running water, you're going to, of course, have a some kind of useful um, – plumbing system for, for waste. And the fact that it isn't there tells you it's not there because they didn't need it.
1: <laughs> That's exactly right. I remember a couple of years ago, I went to Morocco, and I drove probably six hours inland in the middle of nowhere. And you see these structures that had aqueducts, aqueducts everywhere. Oh, it was Roman, the Roman Empire back then. But it makes you wonder, if they had all these aqueducts, you would think that they would have these uh, the technological prowess to build some bathrooms. But as you say, what if in the not-too-distant past, I mean, look at plants. Plants survive on, you know, in, in with light and water, and that's it. They convert the, the, the light into photosynthesis, and they have the energy. What if we had the ability to do that, and the knowledge has been sequestered? I mean, those are things that you cannot discount. But how can people buy the book and all your other books and your websites also, howdy.
2: Okay, thanks. Um, Well, I guess the easiest place to to at least check into the books would be go to amazon.com and and pump in my name and the the, the various books will come up. Exposing the Expositions uh, Revised 2021 is the one we're talking about today. Um, But it doesn't mean you have to buy them from that particular vendor. You can buy them, you can try finding the book at the place you like to buy them from. But that's a good start. I have a website called egyptian-wisdom-revealed.com. Don't ask me why I chose such a crazy long web name. I'm slowly moving that site over to a new one called exit from the cave.com which will be more moving into my current love and focus of what I like to talk about which is Plato's Cave and and the ability of how we can exit it. So slowly, everything will move to that website. And still, my YouTube site is running for now, which is uh, Howdy McCoskey Talks. And you can see, I guess, I've got 150 videos up there on all sorts of topics, and that's where you can find me if you want to hear some more as we go along.
1: I love that, Plato's Cave, because that's exactly what we're living in, and only a fraction of us are telling those people inside the cave, look, that shadow you see on the fire is coming from the outside. And most people are saying, no, don't go outside because you're going to die. We are the ones going out there. We don't care about the ridicule. We know our history. His hyphen story has been hijacked. And this is exactly why I have Howdy Mikowski with me today. One more hour when we come back. This
3: is Mel Hostelrek and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material... Proceed to the member section, or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting, Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, for Focus Life Force Energy. MMS, CBD pure hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know.